Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. I want to welcome you all and uh, wish for you a very happy Festival of the Resurrection. Uh, we know that that is every Lord's Day, that the early church began meeting on the first day of the week in honor of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. We know that uh, the annual observance of a Festival of the Resurrection is a bit of a redundancy, but it's a kind of glorious redundancy. Uh, because the Christian church has learned through the, uh, the ages, through 20 centuries, the, uh, the benefit of uh, focusing in a, in a very clear way on two great festivals, the festival of the incarnation and the festival of the resurrection. And that does make sense. And so that becomes something of the rhythm of the Christian year. And even churches that uh, define themselves as non-liturgical, they don't follow the Christian year, and by the way, there are denominations where every single Sunday is this Sunday, or it's the, uh, it's, uh, you know, the, the fourth Sunday of Christmas tide, or something like that, where you have a developed liturgy. Even in churches that do not have that, and we do not, uh, what we do have is the understanding that it seems right and proper to focus our minds in a particular way on these two great truths, uh, these two times of the year. So this morning we're going to do something a little bit different, not Titus. Uh, and it is because I'm just going to share with you uh, some thoughts and, uh, and look to Scripture and then kind of just talk about what we might want to talk about related to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. And uh, we'll begin with prayer and then we'll turn to 1 Corinthians 15 and uh, then I'll tell you why. Let's pray. Father, we're just so thankful that you have brought us here together on this glorious day. Father, we thank you for the, the beauty of this day, just a reminder of the beauty of life because Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. And Father, we proclaim salvation in his name and uh, we move forward to proclaim the truth, all that you have revealed about the Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. So before I, I turn to 1 Corinthians 15, let me tell you this. I am deep into reading the enemies of Christianity. And uh, that's kind of an ongoing responsibility for a Christian theologian or apologist. But in a particular way, there are times and seasons. And uh, there's another one of these seasons where there are an awful lot of writers out there that are, uh, are writing. And, and in many cases right now, they're, they're not saying my purpose is to debunk or, or to deny Christianity. In, in many ways, what they're trying to do now is to write about Western civilization and try to explain it. And in some ways, it, it's a rather negative assessment even of Western civilization. But you've got a lot of books coming out right now, a lot of authors. And by the way, these are major books. Someone's been working on these for years. And uh, that tells you something about the, the mood of the age. But one thing becomes very clear. And that is that the one Christian doctrine that the external world recognizes as the linchpin of all Christian doctrines is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is not new. If you were to go back to the rise of Protestant liberalism and people were trying to, especially in the 19th century, you had rather organized unbelief uh, you have Robert Ingersoll, the free thinkers, the humanists, and the others running around uh, debunking Christianity, as they said. That, that, they weren't trying to deny the crucifixion. That, that, would, uh, that, that would make little sense. They were seeking to deny the resurrection. 
because the crucifixion requires no supernatural explanation. Now, it, it is a supernatural act because it is on the cross that Christ became our substitute, bearing the penalty for our sin. But to an observer, there, there's no particular theological intervention or divine causality that, that is required. And so you could simply have a human conspiracy to crucify Christ, and that is how he was crucified. It's the resurrection that is irreducibly theological. It's irreducibly miraculous. Uh, people do not rise from the dead. Jesus is risen from the dead, has been raised. Now, it's for that reason that the enemies of Christianity have pounced upon the resurrection from the very beginning. And you find this even in the, the New Testament itself, where it's very clear that uh, the Jewish authorities, by the way, so let, let, let's, let's just do this for a minute. Let, let, let's say, let's just try to make a political analysis of Pontius Pilate. Not a theological analysis, just a political analysis. We actually know much more about Pontius Pilate now than we did, say, 200 years ago. And it is because of Roman records. Pontius Pilate doesn't come out, by the way, looking much better. We do know more of the strategy that Pontius Pilate was deploying as uh, the Roman governor of a very troublesome part of the world, but a very necessary part of the world, simply because of the Fertile Crescent and the way people, if, if, if you were going to go from land, from uh, Egypt or North Africa, or even from the, uh, from the east, and you're going to get to Rome, you're going to have to go through Judea, Galilee, <laughs> dangerous territory, uh, because it's in Jewish hands. They do not recognize the sovereignty of Rome, so Rome conquers, Rome sends a governor. What's Pontius Pilate trying to do? Pontius Pilate decided that what he was trying to do, similar to the other Roman governors, but in a very hot place, he was going to prop up vassal royalty so that, and the Herodian kings, by the way, were a part of this, and of course that starts before Pontius Pilate comes along, but Pontius Pilate, this is why he is trying his best just to keep peace, because that's what Rome has sent him to do. And he only has 3,000 uh, troops uh, there in, uh, under his command. That's, that, those are very few Roman troops. It's going to take an 80, 70, a far larger Roman army to subdue the area after the Jewish uprising. But what Pontius Pilate's trying to do and, and it makes sense in terms even of his, his, his interplay with Jesus. What he's trying to do is just keep peace. That's all he wants. He wants peace. Uh, and he doesn't care about truth. And of course, at one point in the New Testament, Pilate washes his hands and even asks the question, what is truth? He's, he's, so, he's such a bureaucrat that he doesn't even care what truth is. He almost denies the knowability of truth. And besides that, why is truth his business? His business isn't keeping truth. It's just keeping the peace and so, by most human calculations, all Pontius Pilate does in the crucifixion is simply give the Jewish leaders what they demand in order to get peace on the streets, period. That's it. You can come up with political explanations for the crucifixion. You can, you can explain it in terms of human causality. The resurrection, that's very different. The enemies of the resurrection show up in the New Testament simply because the Jewish authorities were seeking to have Jesus crucified simply so they could put an end to him and an end to the Jesus movement, which was threatening their authority. And so a dead Jesus is to them an advantage. 
a risen Jesus is not just to their disadvantage, it's their worst nightmare. And so you can understand the Jewish logic, no, Jesus can't be raised from the dead, but you can also understand the logic of others who, uh, who were just seeking to reject the true claims of Christianity and to explain their rejection of the gospel, and, uh, and they focused on the resurrection as well. Now, as you're looking at, say, 18 centuries later, the rise of theological liberalism, theological liberalism is in the same position as Pontius Pilate. It has no problem with the crucified Christ because that's human causality, or at least you can, you can, you can describe it in terms of mere human causality. But a resurrection is something else. So there was a crisis within Christianity in the 19th century of people trying to say, okay, can we or can we not do without the resurrection? And this was very common, especially you look at Unitarians. Of course, they were the kind of foundational theological liberals in the United States, but also others. And, and then by the time you get Protestant liberal theology at its height, at the end of the 19th and the early 20th centuries, you get people like Adolf von Harnack. And, uh, you know, every once in a while it's good to have a German who goes by a good German name. And uh, you, you can't get a better German name than Adolf von Harnach. And uh, he was at the University of Berlin, the most famous historian. And so he's trying to give a human explanation as an historian. What's a, what, 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 what's a, what, a Geschichte? What's a, what's, a, what's a historical explanation for the resurrection? And he said the historical uh, uh, explanation for the resurrection is that it was an experience that the disciples had that they made into a doctrine. So, in other words, you, you can see Freud's kind of in the background here and, you know, modern developments in psychology in which people are saying, look, there's something real here, but what's real is not a real body raised from the dead. What's real is an experience that these disciples had. And then you can expand it on and say, well, it's kind of an experience that these disciples had and it became infectious to others. And so they speak of Christ risen. And you know, there's, there's, some, there's some Christian hymnody that is not helpful here. Uh, a song we used to sing in my church growing up was He Lives. And it starts out pretty good. I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. And, and then it gets really evangelical sappy in a way. Evangelicals, when you hear yourself say this, you just need to stop singing this song. He walks with me and he talks with me, you know, et cetera. But then the climax of this song is, you ask me how I know he lives, he lives within my heart. Well, that song didn't come, it, it, that, that song is like the hymn of theological liberalism. You ask me how I know he lives, he lives within my heart. You know, in other words, I'm not saying he's alive out there on planet Earth. Uh, he's, he's, he's in my experience. Harnack went a little further and said that the entirety of the Christian theological system was what he called the victory of the Greeks. The uh, Greek philosophers with uh, concerns about being and ontology and ousia and all this. So he called it the acute Hellenization of doctrine. And so you just look at that and you realize, look, people are saying in the 19th century, the, the way to look at Christianity is to say, We'll take the human causation. We'll, we'll, we'll take the human Jesus. We'll take the human causation. And then all this stuff about 
deity and resurrection and miracles and all the rest. We'll put that over in the category. By the time you get to Rudolf Bultmann, another great German name, Rudolf Bultmann. Uh, and, uh, and he was famous for saying that you can't believe in the supernatural anymore. And of course, that meant he was a professor in New Testament at Marburg. Uh, but he, he actually said, people who turn on electric lights do not believe in resurrections from the dead. And, you know, that just made perfect sense to him. If you, if you turn on electric lights, you're a modern person, then you're a modern person, you don't believe in resurrections from the dead, etc. So, Bultmann said, look, there are actually two kinds of history. There's, uh, there's Geschichte. That's history like in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. And then there's Heilsgeschichte, which is like holy history. And that's history that's a narrative, but isn't history in the same way the other history is. So he talked about kerygma, the preaching, and then myth. So you can see where this is going. So the resurrection becomes not not Heilsgeschichte, not Geschichte, but Heilsgeschichte, and uh, and the resurrection becomes not history but myth. What I want us to see, what I us to think about this morning, and and that's why the New Atheist coming back is the same stuff that Richard Dawkins and all the rest, and even right now, you know, a, a set of books coming out. And I say set because I don't think it's an orchestrated plan. It's just a bunch of people writing. One of the things it tells you is that. There is still an enormous need on the part of people who want to revise our society to debunk Christianity. Oddly, it's a testimony to the fact that Christianity is so central to the Western civilizational project that if you actually want to radically change the project, you're going to have to openly oppose Christianity. But it just comes back to me that the one doctrine you have to oppose above all else is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. Because if Jesus Christ is raised from the dead, you do not have what can be claimed as a mere story of human causality anymore. You have a risen Christ. Now, if you're Pontius Pilate and you got a risen Christ, you have got an enormous problem. If you're Rome and you have a risen Christ, you have an enormous problem. But if you are one of Christ's followers and you have a risen Christ, you know not only a Savior, but the Lord. What I want us to see is that this is exactly why the priority language is used by the Apostle Paul. And we've looked at this before, but I wanted to put this in this new context and then come back to this passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Paul writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now, in English, that would be criticized as a run-on sentence, because it's a long sentence, lots of clauses there. But basically, Paul is putting it all on the line. He says he wants to remind them of the gospel that he had preached to them, and that they received this gospel, and that they are even now the true believers, they're standing in this gospel, and even now they're saved by this gospel, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now, let me just say that the Apostle Paul here is not suggesting that there are persons who can become redeemed, who have been regenerated, who have been united to Christ, who can fall away. The New Testament is clear that doesn't happen. 
But there are people who can have some attachment to Christianity, and they fall away. I uh, published an article earlier this week in which I said there are really three distinctions we need to make in society, and this is a very Baptist distinction, okay? So this is, this is a very Baptist distinction, and that is between Christians, artificial Christians, and pagans. As you look at the society around us, there aren't just two categories, Christians and non-Christians. There are really three categories. Well, I mean, the two categories are real. The problem is, to the visible eye, there are really three different categories, and that's Christians, artificial Christians, and pagans. And it really shows up. I, I was in a major article this week uh, by the, Washington, uh, the uh, Wall Street Journal. Francis Roca, a reporter, called me a couple weeks ago, told me he was working on a story on Jesus and contemporary American culture. We talked for about 45 minutes. And, uh, it, uh, but nonetheless, he, uh, he used a good deal of the material I gave him. So you have a Wall Street Journal reporter. He's saying, you know, here's an annual story. Who is Jesus? For years, I did these with a Newsweek and Time magazine. It tells you something of the decline of the Newsweeklies. Back, I've been at this long enough that uh, back uh, when I was uh, a younger man, uh, Newsweek, Time, U.S. News and World Report, they dominated in so many ways the journalistic scene. And then they had cover stories. They were magazines. So the front was really important. And every year, uh, those magazines would have a Christmas issue and a an Easter issue, and they'd have to get religion. And they'd have to say, okay, Christmas is about something religious. Easter is about something religious, so we're going to have to go talk to religious people. And uh, John Meacham was the editor of Newsweek for quite a long time. And uh, he would call me about every year and for those two issues. And he, he was, by the way, a very, very intelligent person, theologically trained himself, although a man of the, of the left. And, uh, you know, you, you get this you get this question, and you look at the article. So if you do look at the Wall Street Journal article by Francis Roca, it was published in, over the weekend edition of the Wall Street Journal. It's basically an amalgam of how many people believe how many different things about Jesus. And that's what Time and Newsweek, U.S. News, that's what USA Today, that's what they do. They're all different beliefs about Jesus. That's why I believe there need to be those three categories, because we look at many of the things said about Jesus, and we go... Well, those people think they're Christians, but that is not Christianity. You know, I often say this street alone is pretty good evidence of that. If you just take this street and take it all the way downtown, you'll cross or at least see an awful lot of church buildings. And people would say, well, that's an historic Christian church. Well, it's, there is no gospel there. Those are not, that, that Christianity is not preached there. But there's those three categories of the Christians, the artificial Christians, and the pagans. Paul here says, unless you believed in vain, which is to say they heard him preach, but they did not take it to heart. They heard the word, and they did not believe it. And uh, there are those who are just that way. But then the Apostle Paul gets right to the point, and I just want us to see again how he presses his case. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. 
For I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. There's a, a, you notice the echo from the beginning of the chapter. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was, it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed." See, I want you to see the parallel in the vein. You see it up there with verse 2, unless you believed in vain. And then you see uh, the Apostle Paul says here that uh, it was not in vain. Christ's grace towards me was not in vain in verse 10. And the evidence is, is in the, the faithfulness. The evidence is in the preaching. The evidence is in the, the, uh, the standing in the gospel. But what I want us just to focus on is that the Apostle Paul stakes everything here. For I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and then that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. It's all or nothing in the Christian faith, and it's good for us to recognize that. It, it's all or nothing. There is no Christianity without the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is none. The New Testament makes that clear. The Apostle Paul puts it here all on the line. There are two central facts upon which Christianity rests. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures and that God raised Him from the dead according to the Scriptures. Now, the according to the Scriptures is also important. So, a little bit of theological controversy in the last several, well, you could say years, but kind of focused in the last several weeks. Andy Stanley in Atlanta. Interesting character. Um, I do not mean this in a personal way, but Andy and I have sparred many, many times. He keeps pressing for what I think he believes is a more culturally relevant Christianity, but I believe it is sub-biblical. So Andy had gone to, uh, uh, to a school in Dallas and given a message. He's very influential, as you recognize. He has a big media platform. And he said, basically, that all that is necessary for salvation is belief in intellectual assent to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. And that we ought not to try to make too much of that case from Scripture but rather from history to avoid complications in a secular era. Well, I just want to say the Apostle Paul did exactly the opposite. The Apostle Paul here, both times he makes the issue plain that Christ died for our sins. What? According to the Scriptures. And that God raised Him from the dead. What? according to the Scriptures. Now, the problem with the suggestion that all that's necessary for salvation is intellectual assent to the resurrection is that that is not at all what you find in the Bible. Now, it's true in a passage like Romans chapter 10. If you believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, then you have this, you know, that, that's a, an essential part of faith. But obedience to Christ is also faith. Uh, becoming Christ's disciple is also required in salvation. And so what I think is uh, so much of this kind of 
seeker-sensitive or updated supposed Christianity. It's just Protestant liberalism in a new guise. It's just it's the same thing showing up uh, in a new dress. And the other thing is we have no independent means of investigation. The, this is the great 19th century liberal dream, is that you could just get rid of Scripture and somehow simply by the study of history determine who Jesus is and, and what Jesus means. Well, the problem is history can do many, many things. But, just think of the controversies of our day, history is an argument. History is an argument. There are some facts of history, but the meaning of those facts, and, and by the way, we count on that. We're, we're on the very fact basis uh, side of that, of that argument. But you can, come, you can present the same historical facts, and you can have many different explanations. And you'll notice that secular history does not deal with what is bracketed. And you say, well, that's an interesting word. Well, that's actually the word that's used. And that is, so you bracket things, you say, that is outside the realm of our investigation. The credible historian will not seek to determine whether Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. That is bracketed. That is outside historical investigation, they will say. What they do is to seek to understand, say, the preaching of the Christian church. Is it or is it not true that the Christian church preached that Christ was risen from the dead? And by the way, no one's really trying to argue that the early Christian church did not do that. A lot of this just comes back to presuppositions. If our presuppositions are secular, people don't rise from the dead, then we'll end up not talking about Christ risen from the dead, but we'll end up talking about the strange people who seem to believe that. On the other hand, if we believe that God from the very beginning of the biblical story in the creation of the cosmos has been revealing himself not only in creation and in his word, that is to say the inscripturated word, but also in acts of which he is the sole sufficient explanation. You could call them miracles. They're, they're acts of God for whom, for which God is the sole sufficient explanation as the Lord of the entire cosmos. If your presupposition is that there is such a God and he acts in such a way, then you're going to end up in a very different place than if you're operating under those secular presuppositions. What I wanted us to see this morning is that the Apostle Paul, with great, great confidence, preaching to the Corinthians, and, and this is not an Easter message, this is a Christian unity message. This is the Apostle Paul seeking to help a church that was involved in the early age of Christianity in a lot of conflict, which is understandable, understandable. We, we don't look at the Corinthians and go, wow, those are strange, unruly Christians. We go, look, here are these early Christians trying to figure out how to be Christian in the middle of the Roman Empire. How you put Jews and and, and Gentiles together in one church as brothers and sisters in Christ. How you, how you order the preaching of the gospel. How do you make certain that this is the faith once for all delivered to the saints? How do you deal with sin? How do you exercise discipline in a church? And, and, and what is the centering truth? And this is where the Apostle Paul comes back to the centering truth being the crucifixion and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul doesn't say that's all I have to say. He says, this is what I preach to you, which I also received as of first priority. 
that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture and that God raised him from the dead according to the Scripture. Now, is there both an objective and a subjective reality here? We as Christians would say yes. Yes. As biblically-minded, orthodox believers, we would say yes, there is an objective and a subjective dimension to this. The, uh, the liberals, by the way, would say there is an objective dimension, but the objective dimension is just that the church has preached this. We believe the objective dimension is that God raised Jesus from the dead. The New Testament preaching is just the affirmation of that. But the subjective experience is, is also very much a part of the Christian faith. We are, the New Testament tells us, to live by the resurrection. We are to live in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to have a worldview that is suffused with, permeated by, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. We are to preach Christ crucified and raised from the dead. And we are to speak of what it means for us that Christ has been raised from the dead. That song I suggested is really unhelpful. You ask me how I know he lives, he lives within my heart. It's not unhelpful because it's untrue. It's unhelpful because the sure, certain foundation of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is not my experience, but it's God's word. But by God's grace, it is my experience. By God's grace, it is the experience of every single Christian. We have an indwelling Christ who is the resurrected Christ. And so, as we come to the festival of the resurrection, what the, the world calls Easter, and we think about the church again and again coming back just to say, basically, this is a festival that allows us to look each other in the eye and just say, this is what we believe. This is what Christianity is. This is what the gospel comes down to. This is what should make us unspeakably happy. This is what gives us everlasting, eternal joy, not just on this Sunday, but on every Sunday. In conclusion, I just want to remind us why Easter doesn't necessarily help. Okay. And you say, well, that's confusing because you said it does. No, I said the festival of the resurrection is very helpful. Easter, not so helpful. So let me just give you a little background to that. The name is of a pagan female deity. Astarte, through language derived down to Easter. Not good. Not good. The festival of the pagans connected to Astarte was not crucifixion for the forgiveness of sins and raising from the dead. It was fertility. Fertility. 
The symbol of Easter uh, for the commercial world is fertility made into chocolate eggs. Uh, in the ancient world, the fertility came down to chicks and eggs and bunnies. And the reason for that is that you do celebrate chicks and eggs and bunnies more than you could celebrate other baby animals that are not so cute and not so safe. But chicks, bunnies, we can do that. You know, I had a, a religion professor in college who said, if you knew what the pagans thought about eggs, you would never coat them in chocolate and give them to your three-year-old. This was really pagan worship, what they did with eggs and what they thought of the whole thing. I mean, the, I, you just have to think that some pagan somewhere is going, well, we did win on Easter. Uh, because even those Christian moms and dads are out there giving their kids fertility treats. And, you know, they <laughs> have no idea what they're doing. And, uh, and not only that, they hide them all over the yard and the kids all dressed up. They got their nice little baskets out there looking for fertility cult objects. Uh, and they just go, just go all over. And uh, this professor, by the way, p pointed out that, uh, that in the ancient Near East, there were two great symbols of fertility. They were eggs and snakes. And he said, but evidently there was no market in chocolate-covered snakes. And so <laughs> they were never a big commercial success. <laughs> it's true. You go in the ancient Near East, uh, it's because the, the snakes... Uh, appeared to shed their skin and live forever was the kind of idea. So this is just this fertility and they had these balls of snakes in the ancient Near East in the desert. You come across these writhing balls of snakes. Okay, not good for an Easter basket. Not good for an Easter photo. So again, I, I am not on a crusade against Easter. Um, thankfully, you know, the three-year-old is not thinking pagan thoughts of idol worship, but rather thinking... This is nice. Mom and dad did this for me, and I like chocolate. So that's right. And the marshmallow bunnies. Uh, there's an article in the Wall Street Journal about the guy that came up with peeps and uh, that he was so successful far beyond what they could have imagined with these little marshmallow, I guess they're chicks, or is that what they are? Peeps, they're chicks. That's why they peep. Yeah. He's so successful. <laughs> he intended, I'm a little slow on the candy, the confection theology, but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, he, uh, he intended to make them at Christmas, and they ended up being so popular, it made him a fabulously wealthy person. And, of course, he sold out to some big candy conglomerate, and uh, they, they sell all the year. I, frankly, do not get it. I've never been tempted to pop a peep, but uh, evidently. But you do that, and you just say, you know, that, this is what America does. America takes Middle Eastern fertility symbols and makes them into candies. That's what we do. All that to say, if the world could just reduce what it calls Easter down to bunnies and chicks and eggs, it could handle it. But you understand something else is at work. It's not just that because there's a commercial market in chocolate eggs. It's because it is a way of not talking about Jesus raised from the dead. And so, without just castigating the world, because the world does what the world does, it's just a reminder that we do what we do.
And thus, we have come here on this Sunday morning, as every single Sunday morning, to declare the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead and to declare salvation in his name. And we get to do that this morning. And we'll do it through the way we always do it. And that is through prayer, reading of scripture, the singing of hymns, and the preaching of the word. So I am thrilled to be here this resurrection morning with you. And um, thrilled to be reminded by the Apostle Paul that the enemies of the resurrection are very old and they continue. But the centrality of the crucifixion and the resurrection are essential to Christianity. And that's not a burden we bear. That is good tidings, gospel we preach. So, it's been a delight to be with you. Uh, I, I had someone ask me if I would, uh, perhaps on this morning, just give a few minutes, we, we have just a few minutes, uh, because folks had some questions about Easter, and we'll just do the best we can if there are questions anyone has, and if not, you have a little longer time to get coffee. All right. Okay, excuse me. Yes. Because that was the apostolic declaration. He is risen. He is risen indeed. In other words, his raising was not just to rise, but to stay risen. So that, that's why the, it's a good question. That's why the present tense uh, is used. Yes. Yes. No, I, I think it, it's actually, it, it, it's a part of the miraculous, you might say, overflow, and especially in the Gospel of Matthew, this miraculous overflow that other, other people, but they, the, the, that gets right back to the previous question, which now in God's providence is perfectly timed. They didn't stay raised from the dead. That's one of the things you say, Jesus is risen from the dead. There were others, and by the way, in the Old Testament, you know, both Elijah and Elisha were involved in bringing people back from the dead, but they, they died again. <laughs> so in other words, they, they were not resurrected in the sense to everlasting life. That's where the singular is Jesus, and then we in him are, are given that gift of, of everlasting life. Uh, Kind of going back to the argument I, I, I was saying is kind of, you know, just the minimalism of the intellectual ascent to the resurrection. Uh, some of the people who are arguing for that say that a part of using the Bible is that you get all this unnecessary flack. And the, even the Matthean account you, you brought up. And I'll simply say every word of Scripture is divinely inspired and is good for us. So... We run from none of it. But no, you're right. That's a good question. And I would put those folks in the same category as the Jarius's daughter and uh, the, the young men resurrected by both Elijah and Elisha. Uh, they weren't resurrected to live forever. Yes, sir. Yes. Right. 
Yeah, and, and that's one of the reasons why everything we say is just kind of in the, we, have, we, we need to have a couple of categories. Number one, here's how the Bible says it, and so we need to say it exactly this way. And then there is the, okay, the Bible uses two or three different ways of describing this. What's the majority way? And, and then, so the other ways are obviously legitimized, but, but how did the early church come to preach the gospel? And so, um, yeah, Jesus was very clear saying that, uh, you know, I, I will raise it up again. And, and, but the early church's testimony is to the Father raising Jesus from the dead. And, and the danger is, it, in other words, I think it's just really important that the early church said, look, this is a Trinitarian event. This is not the Son simply walking out of the tomb. This is the Father vindicating the Son. And, uh, and, and, and that's, that's the good news of the gospel, is that God has raised. And, you know, I'll go back to 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 15 where, where it says he was raised from the dead. Now, it's not to take anything away from Jesus saying, and, and, and by the way, there was a Louisville-based uh, gospel singer back in the 70s uh, named Don Francisco who had a best-selling song uh, that, in, in which Jesus's climactic declaration is, I will rise again. And, and, and that is true, and Jesus did say it, but the majority way the early church gave testimony to this, even in the scriptures, is that God raised him from the dead. So it's a good question. So if someone says, you know, Jesus rose from the dead with no reference to the Father, I don't walk up to them and, you know, correct them. Uh, but I, I want to preach the gospel the way it's preached by the apostles. So sometimes it's a matter of prudence. The other thing is, like I mentioned that bad hymn, every once in a while you hear something and you say, that could be said just a little bit better. Sometimes you hear yourself say it, and you go, that could be said just a little bit better. And sometimes you sing a hymn, and you go, and, and by the way, that's why this, this uh, Reformation and contemporary hymnody is so good and healthy, is because so much of it is being written with so much theological precision. Back during the early 20th century, a lot of Sunday school songs and stuff like that were developed, and they, there's just an awful lot of sentimentality in them. We're, we're not trying to avoid sentiment. But the sentiment needs to be based in clear doctrinal declarations. So I hope that makes sense. Well, it's been glorious to be with you this morning, and we look forward to a glorious time of worship together. And uh, let's close with prayer. Father, we just thank you that as we even think of such things as the gospel, Father, we do so with great, great joy that you have not only saved us by the blood and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, you've made us stewards of this good news. Father, may we be faithful of that, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.